Take your Bibles today and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us today, let me explain. We've been for a while now in a little series in the book of Corinthians, uh, just kind of working our way through it. I think we've been in it for seven weeks now. And uh, so we're just continuing on that today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's start reading in verse number 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have ten thousand instructors in Christ, Yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the word. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us now through it. I pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit. Protect my speech today. Help me, Lord, to only say those things I ought to, uh, to boldly say those things I ought to. I pray, Father, you would just use this message in a way that glorifies my Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that it would uh, reveal uh, your truth to all those who hear today. Speak to us, teach us, use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, for nearly two months now, we've been listening to the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. And throughout that two months, we have seen him on the same exact subject. He has been talking about the problem of division in the church at Corinth. And this morning, as we come to chapter 4, we're going to finally see him wrap up his arguments on that particular topic. And some of you are probably saying, hallelujah, we've been talking about that for a long time. 
Uh, when we get to chapter 5 and verse number 1, though, when you see what we're going to be talking about as we move off of this topic and on to the next, you might not be quite so excited because it's going to get even more heavy when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1, which says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. We're going to be getting into deep waters when we get into chapter 5 and difficult topics and very relevant to our culture today. But nonetheless, here he is wrapping up now in chapter 4 his discussion of division in the church. I don't know about you, but I kind of like legal programs on television. Anybody like those lawyer-type programs where you see them? Perry Mason was one that comes to mind, uh, where they would stand up and they would give their arguments before the jury. And one of the things that always seems to be the, the most interesting to me is watching them dramatically provide their closing arguments. Have you ever, you ever noticed that? How many of you like to watch that and just see how they do that? Well, I would like to suggest to you today that I think that's what's happening here. I think what Paul is doing in chapter 4 is pretty much giving his summation, giving his closing arguments to the jury here this morning. And so, uh, as is always the case with the closing argument, there's not a whole lot of new material. It's more of a repetition of things he's already stated. But uh, he's just kind of driving home the point. And so, you are the jury. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I want you to listen this morning to the Apostle Paul's closing arguments as he wraps up what he has to say about this matter of division in the local church. And I, I, I see here, and you may see more, but I see five different closing arguments that he makes here. Number one, closing argument number one, he says, you need to think rightly about your leaders. And that's in the first three verses there. You need to think rightly about your leaders he, he, he reiterates some things he said before. They are servants. They are stewards. And God's primary requirement of or expectation of them is faithfulness. Now, he's kind of said that before, hasn't he? Haven't we seen enough of that in the first four chapters that you, you, you recognize? He's not saying anything new there. They are primarily servants. Leaders are servants. But now he does, he makes it a little bit different here because when he mentioned that before, he used a word from which we get our word deacon. And that word means table waiter. And uh, we mention this to the deacons all the time. You guys are table waiters. You are servants. It's a, it's a word that speaks to the servant aspect of the role. And so he's saying they're leaders. But here when he talks about it, he uses a different word. That word servants there is not the same word. This is a word that, that literally means under rower. And it's a word that pictures, if you can picture in your mind, the Roman galleons of the day where the men would be rowing on oars. That's the picture that it is. It is a, a word that describes that particular role. It is a word that emphasized not just the service aspect of leadership in the local church like the word deacon does, but it emphasized the subordinate role, the responsibility of the role. The leader is a responsible, subordinate person, responsible to somebody else. Leaders in the local church are rowing under the instruction of the master. And we're responsible to him. It's an interesting picture, is it not? But he says you need to understand that. You need to think rightly about your leaders. Leaders are servants. He also says leaders are stewards. I'm not sure he's really mentioned that in, in that word before. Maybe he has. But leaders are stewards. I mentioned it a minute ago when we took our offering. I've always liked that particular word in the Bible for some reason. A steward is somebody who manages that which belongs to somebody else. A steward is not somebody who is concerned with his own stuff. He manages or she manages that which belongs to somebody else. You've been entrusted with something not yours 
and you're expected to manage it for the one who entrusted it to you in the first place. And we do usually think about it in respect to finances, don't we? The fact is, the Bible tells us that we don't own anything. Most of you guys probably have a wallet in your pocket right now, and you probably have this strange thought in your head that that's your wallet. You probably feel very possessive about that wallet. But you know what the Bible says? It's not your wallet. It's God's wallet. I, I just bought a new wallet the other day. It's all shiny and nice and new. I'd take it out and show it to you, but you'd be jealous of it. it, it you know, but it's not my wallet. It's God's wallet. And it's a, it's a wonderful and important thing for us to understand and a very freeing principle in the Word of God when we understand that God owns it all and we are but stewards of it, managers of it. Well, that's what he says here about leadership in the local church. Leaders are stewards. They have been entrusted with certain things, uh, the gospel, for example, and they are responsible to manage that as good stewards. I don't know how many Lord of the Rings fans. We got any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Nick, you're shaking your head. No, that's, you're not even right with God. Lord, Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest things ever written. But nonetheless, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you'll remember that there was this mythical land of Gondor. And Gondor was uh, a place where there was supposed to be a king, but the king was not on the throne. And it had been entrusted to a steward. Anybody know what the steward's name was? We're testing your Tolkien knowledge now. His name was Denethor. And Denethor was the steward. He had been entrusted with the kingdom until the king returned. And I just want to read you a quote that, that somebody, uh, somebody mentioned about this and used this as an illustration of what we're seeing right here. Here's what this man said. He said, as steward of the land, Denethor had the power of the king, but without the title and without the full measure of honor. He was able to make decisions and to pass judgment. He received the respect and admiration of the people of the land. His primary task was to do whatever was best for the land in the absence of its rightful ruler. In all he did, he was to remember his position, to remember that he was not and never would be the king. And as a constant reminder of his temporary position, he was forbidden to rule from the king's throne. And I didn't remember that as I read this illustration. I didn't remember that. I've read the book a couple of times, but... Then he went on to quote, actually from the book, here's in the words of Tolkien himself, he said, awe fell upon him as he looked down that avenue of kings long dead. At the far end, upon a dais of many steps, was set a throne under a canopy of marble shaped like a crowned helm. Behind it was carved upon the wall and set with gems an image of a tree in flower, but the throne was empty. At the foot of the dais, upon the lowest step, which was broad and deep, there was a stone chair, black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man. That man, of course, was the steward. Where the king was allowed the full honor of sitting upon the throne, surrounded by splendor, the steward was consigned to rule from a plain, unadorned chair that sat at the foot of the throne. And the Apostle Paul says here that the leader in the local church, leaders in the church, have been entrusted with the good news and are therefore responsible to manage it well. It is a stewardship, but we dare not put leaders on the throne. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You need to understand and, and, and have the right view of your leaders. What is it that marks a leader as a good steward? What is it that marks a leader as one who would be considered successful, perhaps, according to Paul's definition here? He says it's faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, we would tend to judge them based on their good looks or their eloquence or their administrative capabilities, or whatever. You fill in the blank. We all have our ways that we judge. I talk to people all the time about different churches, and it is amazing to me the things I will hear 
people describe about, you know, other people who are in leadership. But that's not what, what the Bible says here. God says, the Bible says, that God's requirement is much more straightforward. He's looking simply for faithfulness. And so may God help us to be faithful and to be good stewards. Closing argument number one, he says, think rightly about your leaders. Closing argument number two, this is in verses three through five. He says, neither your opinion nor my opinion carry the slightest weight. This is an interesting passage that he's talking about here. There's all kinds of strange things that he kind of deals with. He's summing this up. But but see, if you don't see that, as you look at verses three through five, he says, neither your opinion nor my opinion carry the slightest weight. The only opinion that matters, the only one is God's. Now, if we look at verse number five, verse number five um, says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. If we look at that, obviously, he's revisiting what we talked about last week, right? The judgment seat of Christ and the coming judgment. He's He's talking about that there. But I think he's also adding a little bit something more interesting. Whereas he's already mentioned that we are going to have to be judged, now he's kind of saying, you need to recognize that you're not the one who's going to do it. And I'm not the one who's going to do it. God's the only one who's going to do it. He points out in verse number three that their judgment is irrelevant to him. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Look at verse number three. almost sounds arrogant, doesn't it? But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Or by a human court. That's interesting. Does it sound arrogant? I won't ask you to raise hands because probably many of you are saying, yeah, it's stinking arrogant, Paul. How could he say a thing like that? It almost sounds like he's saying, I'm not the slightest bit interested in what you think of me. Isn't that basically what it sounds like he's saying? If you're honest with yourself, you're saying, yes, it is. He's saying, as a matter of fact, I'm not remotely concerned about what any human court might think or judge. And it does sound arrogant. And here's the deal. It is exactly what he's saying. I don't care. What you think of me is what he's saying. But before we judge him too harshly, let's keep reading because he's not done. He didn't stop right there. Verse number four, he said, I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. He goes on to say he doesn't even consider his own judgment to be valid. He doesn't consider that he can pass judgment on himself. Here's here's an alternative translation I found. See if this helps to make that clear. He says to me, for my part... It is a very small matter that I should be approved of by man's judgment. Yea, I do not even assume the right of judgment and approving myself. But he that has the right and is able to judge on my case is the Lord. So here's what he's saying. He's saying basically you're not qualified to judge me and my service to God. And I am not qualified to judge my service to God. We oftentimes like to say, Let your conscience be your guide. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, my conscience is clear. I don't know of anything, anything that would say that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. But he says, I can't can't trust that. Because your your conscience is not a trustworthy, a reliable judge. Only God's judgment in the matter matters. That's what he's saying. I love the quote by Teddy Roosevelt. Famous quote. I I don't know if it really fits here or not. But I'm going to throw it in anyway because I love the quote by Teddy Roosevelt. Listen to this. You've heard it before. It's a great quote. Teddy Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is not effort without error and shortcomings. 
but who does actually strive to do the deed, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, well, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Isn't that a great quote? I love that quote. You know, Paul knew that there would always be those who would be critiquing him. And that's what's going on here in all these four chapters, right? He's being critiqued, as are all of the other leaders there. He knew there would always be those who would criticize his efforts. There would always be those who would set themselves up as judges of his apostleship. And he also knew that they were completely irrelevant. Because their judge was his judge. And only he was the one who was qualified to judge. So closing argument, number two. Neither your opinion nor my opinion carry the slightest weight. Closing argument number three. This is in verses 6 through 13. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit harder passage for us to interpret, but verses 6 through 13, I believe he's saying here, you're, you're not all that. You're not there yet. You're not all that. You're not there yet. It is an interesting passage. It is filled with meaning. But I think we can sum up Paul's argument here. I think here's what he's saying. He's saying, get down off your high horses, you who want to judge the performance of others. You who want to divide the church. Remember, that's what was happening. You who want to divide the church up along party lines based on your favorite leaders. Stick a pin in your self-inflated selves because you're not there yet. You have not arrived yet. The battle is not over yet. The race is not run yet. We're not done. Verses 8 through 10 are interesting. Did you notice verses 8 through 10? Take a look at them. Those things appear to be, and, and most places that you go and, and, and study this, most commentaries you look at or study Bibles you look at, will, will say that those verses are ironic. Those verses are sarcasm. Dripping with sarcasm. He's basically saying to them, you know, I'm still struggling through my faith here, but you brilliant Corinthians, you're already done. Isn't that what he's saying? We apostles are still in the bowels of the galley and pulling at the oars. But you guys are already arrived. You're already reigning as kings. You're already enthroned. You're already exalted. And so it was sarcastic. And such sarcasm and, and, and uh, irony were no doubt meant to, in, uh, to deflate their egos and remind those who had some arrogant attitude here that they had a ways to go yet. But I love something that Paul tosses in as he's saying this. I love verse number 8. I think it's verse number eight. Yeah, verse number eight. You are already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. <laughs> Every once in a while, the apostle Paul cracks open his heart a little bit, and you get to look in and you get to see him. And you get to see just a little bit about what he really thinks. And he's saying, you know what? My heart's no different than yours. I'd love to be at the finish line, too. I'd love to be there, and I, I would love for you to be there, because if you're there, that means I'm there. And so you see a little bit of him there. But no matter what you think of yourself, we're not there yet. And no matter where you think you're on your journey, we're not at the finish line yet. It's just like he said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, when he said, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so basically what he's saying here in closing argument number three is, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. And I think all of that is basically, those verses are basically 
talking about that, that concept. But there's a couple of sentences in here, or maybe just little statements I want to pull out before we move off this point, because um, they could be whole sermons in and of themselves. There's some tremendous truth in just a couple of statements here that I, I don't want to skip. Look with me, for example, at verse number 6. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Look at that little phrase there, learn not to think beyond what is written. I realize I skipped some words there, and I realize I stuck a little ellipsis in there, but you see that in there, don't you? It's saying that. Learn not to think beyond what is written. What a great an overriding principle. He just casually tosses in there in the middle of this argument. Learn not to think above what is written. In that simple little phrase, which we might easily skim right past, we see the Apostle Paul reminding us of the centrality of the Bible in our lives. One, one translation renders that live according to Scripture. You know what? I cannot, I cannot spend any time in my Bible, and I doubt you can too, without seeing myself for what I am. Can you do that? Without, without coming away recognizing that I have nothing to boast about. That I have nothing to be arrogant or puffed up about. Can you do that? When we look at ourselves through the pages of Scripture, we see how much we need. We see how, I don't know how else to say it, how much we need. And so learn not to think beyond what is written. And he says another thing here that I want to mention before we move off. It's verse number seven. He says, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This past Wednesday night, we started the uh, Leadership Training Institute, and uh, Pastor Phil was speaking on spiritual disciplines. And he mentioned several. He mentioned study, reading, all, all good stuff. But he mentioned meditation, for those who were there, meditation. And I want to suggest to you uh, a verse that we ought to meditate on, and that's that one, verse number seven. Who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who is it that differentiates me from you, you from me, or any of us from anybody else? Who? Meditate on that for a while, and it will take all pride, all arrogance away, because it's God. What gift or giftedness is in you that did not come as a gift from God? Meditate on it for a while. How can we boast? How can we be proud? How can we be arrogant of anything that we have when we realize it is all a gift of God? And so what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, how indeed can you boast about it? Eugene Peterson paraphrased this verse like this. He said, who do you know that really knows you, knows your heart? And even if they did, is there anything they would discover in you that you could take credit for? Isn't everything you have and everything you are sheer gifts from God? So what's the point of all this comparing and competing? So closing argument number three, you're not there yet. Closing argument number four, verses 14 through 17. Never forget your roots. Never forget your roots. Go back to the beginning often. It's funny, isn't it, how we've had four chapters now of the Apostle Paul really kind of blowing fire about the whole idea of division. Blowing fire about the whole idea of setting anybody up on a pedestal and having your favorite leaders in the church. And then we come here to this passage, and we see that after all this long section, he now asks them to follow him. Do you see that? 
He says, imitate me. After all he said, don't do that. Now he says, imitate me. But I would suggest to you that I don't, I don't think there's any arrogance or glory seeking in that. The following that was wrong involved arrogance. It involved, it involved all kinds of things that we've already talked about. But I don't see that here. I don't believe Paul was trying to secure a following. I think he was simply once again revealing his heart to them. Pointing out to them that he cared about them. Telling them, I'm the one who won you to Christ. Who could ever care about you more than the one who led you to know the Lord? The one who is your spiritual father. One source I read said, many ministers might address, advise, and instruct the Corinthians, but only one had planted the seed that brought them life. More than any guardian, Paul had their interests at heart. And I think that's what he's talking about. You know, the first assignment for those who are participating in our, in our training institute is to write out your testimony. And one of the reasons we thought that was important is because it's vitally important that we be able to articulate where we started, how we met Christ, where it all started in our walk with him. And I think it is so important for us to be able to go back, to never get tired of thinking about how we came to know the Lord. You know, we're talking about remodeling this, this auditorium a little bit, and we're talking about changing some of this platform. And there's a part of me that, uh, that struggles about that a little bit, even though I want it done and know it needs to be done. Because, you know, I came to know the Lord right about in here somewhere. The platform stopped right here back then. So it would have been right about here somewhere that I came to know the Lord. And so every time I'm standing up here, I, I kind of, in a way, go back there. And if we change this, it might mess that up in my head a little bit. But nonetheless, it's a good thing. We're going to do it anyway. But we need to go back, don't we? We need to go back. We need to remember. Do you remember the person who led you to Christ? Do you remember how you came to know if that person is still alive, have you talked to him lately and said, thank you for leading me to know the Lord Jesus Christ? I think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying. I think he's saying we should never get tired of remembering that we were born of the Spirit with life from above. As John W. Peterson said, that we were born into God's family divine. That we were justified fully by Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. Do you ever, do you ever just go back and think about that? That's what he's saying. Closing argument number four, never forget your roots. And finally, closing argument number five, less talk, more walk. Less talk, more walk. Verses 18 through 20. This is, uh, this is basically what I used as the, as the theme for the message this morning and where we got our title for the message this morning. Paul's moving on here. He's done. He's finally, he's wrung the last argument he can out of this. He's flogged it for all it's worth. And finally, when we get to chapter 5, he's going to change the subject. But I like how he can't quite leave it alone. <laughs> he, can't, he can't quite leave it alone. In verses 18 through 20, he basically says, okay, we're done with this now. But I'm coming to see you pretty soon, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more when we get there. He just can't quite leave it behind. But he sums it all up. He sums it all up in verse number 19. He says, I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Or as another translation clarifies it, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And so I think he's saying, less talk, more walk. Your lips need to take a back seat to your lifestyle. Your words need to be overshadowed by your walk. I think it's a warning here that all of this is a result of talking what we're not walking. 
To somebody like me, whose ministry is primarily verbal, this is a serious warning. But it's not just a serious warning to preachers who stand in a pulpit and preach. It's a serious warning to every one of us. Does our life line up with that which we talk about? Is the power of Christ showing forth in our life, or is it just a matter of words? 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 20, according to the New Living Translation, says the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. And Paul said to the Thessalonians, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You saw it in our walk, not just in our words. And so I believe that sums it up. I believe he's done. I believe he's finally brought this whole long argument to a close. And I think what he's saying is it's not about the words you speak. It's about the life you live. The kingdom of God is to be lived and not discussed. So quit talking. Get busy walking. That's what he's saying. Well, he's done. And the last thing that he mentions here in chapter 4 is that he is planning to come and visit them shortly. And he wonders here. Do you see it? You see him kind of asking himself. He wonders, what am I going to find when I get there? When I get to Corinth, will I find my beloved Corinthian church united? As he said, clear back in chapter 1, they ought to be. Chapter 1, verse number 10. Would they be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment? Or would he find that they were still divided? Still tore up? Still struggling with those kinds of things? I think it's a reminder to us. And I hope a challenge to us as a church as we think back off of this long discussion that we've had on this topic. You know, Jesus is making final preparations right now. You know that? He's getting ready. He's getting ready to take a trip. He's getting ready to come back. And I wonder when he comes, will he find this church perfectly joined together in one mind, in one heart? Or will he find us divided? I hope he finds us united. When I went to Midwestern Baptist College, we every day in chapel service had to recite a little creed. I've mentioned it to you before. I'll mention it one more time and then we're done. Every day in chapel, we would all stand as a student body and we would say, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And in the deity of Jesus Christ, God's Son, in whom we have salvation from sin by grace through faith. I believe the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and gives guidance and power as we surrender to the Lordship of Christ. I believe God has given to the church the responsibility to evangelize the world through the preaching of the gospel and personal soul winning. I will seek to live today so as to be ready to meet him at his coming. And that is the line I want to leave you with this morning. I will seek today so as to be ready to, to meet him at his coming. Paul said, I'll be there shortly, and I'll know. I'll know whether you're walking or whether you're just talking. And Jesus says the same thing to us this morning.